Hello, hello, and welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. Today, I am talking with Dr. Amina Keats all about breast cancer. I love talking with her because she has both that conventional and functional or integrative experience for her patients. Dr. Keats is board certified in naturopathic oncology and has specialized in integrative oncology for close to 15 years. She's worked at Cancer Treatment Centers of America and later directed a naturopathic oncology department. She currently works in private practice at Capital Integrative Health in Bethesda, Maryland. It was an absolute pleasure talking with her today as breast cancer can be a huge, scary topic for a lot of us. And Dr. Keats broke down the basics. Here's a clip from today's conversation. Whenever there's an ER positive kind of breast cancer diagnosis, of course, you're going to be thinking about things that help to reduce kind of exogenous estrogen intake, supporting estrogen kind of metabolism detoxification. So of course you got that category, but then what if you get the last back and suppose there's increased levels of something like I mentioned IGF-1, which we're supposed to have normal levels in our circulation, but when they're elevated, it can actually act as a growth factor, potentially just like insulin, like I mentioned. So definitely want to kind of regulate those things that are abnormal looking at things like kidney function, liver function in the the metabolic panel, looking at things again like vitamin D. So really taking all these things into account and creating a comprehensive treatment plan that just doesn't impact estrogen kind of pathway, but other kinds of categories as well. Thyroid health is important too, right? So low levels of thyroid or hypothyroidism can certainly increase the risk of breast cancer. So that's something that I measure for most patients as well. But really taking the deeper dive in terms of laboratory analysis is really the key. That's just a small taste of the amazing show we have for you today. Hey, before we get started, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. And if you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you are placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health, and Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 25 different labs in one single place. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. So if you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's get on with the show. Dr. Amina Keats, thank you so much for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I am thrilled because you were the first person I've had on the podcast to talk about anything breast cancer related. And as you and I've talked before a couple of times, I just love your approach to helping women understand what's going on with breast cancer. And we're going to really dive in today. Sounds good. I'm ready. Well, before we get started, why don't you give everyone just a quick little introduction of who you are? your background, and what makes you different when it comes to oncology? Sure. So my name is Dr. Amina Keats. I'm a naturopathic doctor and also board certified in naturopathic oncology. And I have been practicing integrative oncology for about 16 or 17 years now. And I practice in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, and I have the opportunity to work with patients within the state and even outside of the state. So that's really wonderful in terms of just helping people as much as I'm able to. And most of the patients that I work with are actually receiving the standard of care. So there's a lot of work around supporting patients and making sure that their plans are as complete 
and as comprehensive as possible. I love that because we are going to be touching on that throughout the questions because I think those who are listening are going to realize that some of the things you say might be different than what they're used to or in addition to what they're used to. So I want to start off with some of the basics. If somebody is listening to this and they just found out they have breast cancer or their sister has breast cancer, their best friend has breast cancer, going through all that whole process. But the first thing I want to ask you, since you've been in this field 16 or 17 years, what are you seeing from an integrative naturopathic oncology approach? What trends are you seeing in cancer that we need to know about? Sure. So, well, first of all, when it comes to cancer in general, and especially breast cancer, what I'm finding is that there is a lot of interest in an integrative approach, which is really wonderful. So it's not a point of patients saying, I want to do alternative, or I just want to do conventional. Patients are really interested in doing everything they can to help to prevent a recurrence of breast cancer and help to just fight cancer, breast cancer in general. And so that is really important in terms of patients being proactive and having control versus saying this is a medication or a treatment or chemotherapy that you have to sit back and receive. And so definitely seeing more of that over the years. Now, in terms of statistics and that kind of information, when it comes to the incidence of breast cancer, there hasn't been much of a change, unfortunately. So for example, if you compare the stats in, let's say, 1975, at that time, maybe one in 11 women were being diagnosed with breast cancer. Fast forward to now, that stat has changed. It has worsened, actually, where currently one in every eight women are expected to become diagnosed with breast cancer. Now, on the flip side of that, the mortality rate has declined, which is good, more so in the uh, postmenopausal kind of population versus the premenopausal kind of population. And when you hear that, you may wonder, why is that, right? And so it's probably due to screening guidelines that have been tightened up over the years, as well as treatment options. There are more treatment options available for patients in terms of targeted therapies specifically. Actually, screening guidelines, can you remind all of us What do you tell women for screening guidelines? What do you tend to follow? Yeah, so first you have to think about the category of risk. And so there is a category of high-risk patients. And so if a patient is at high risk, meaning they have a strong family history of breast cancer, or they may have a personal history of breast cancer, or they may have some inherited genes that increase the risk of breast cancer. Under those circumstances, screening should begin before the age of 40. And most of the time, patients will be guided in that way by their uh, primary care provider or by their gynecologist. Now, for moderately, for moderate risk kind of category, that's basically the opposite. So patients who do not have the personal history or the family history or that inherited kind of genetic history. Now, what I usually do is advise patients based on the guidelines recommended by the American Cancer Society, which is between the ages of 40 and 44, mammograms, the first mammogram is optional. Beyond that point, patients should start to get the mammograms every year. Once they get into like mid-50s, maybe not as frequent because we do have to be mindful about radiation exposure, but those are the generally the, the guidelines that I recommend. And actually, uh, one more question about this, uh, self-breast exams. I know that, right, that used to be way back when I started even residency, it was every woman needs to do a self-breast exam. And my mom was taught it. I was taught it. And actually, when I was in practice, all the women that I 
diagnosed with breast cancer, they found themselves, they yeah. found on a breast exam, came in and said, Carrie, what is this? Uh, sent them for imaging. But now they say, I think, right, not to do self-breast exams. So yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And that is true. It's not encouraged as much as it was before at one time. I do encourage women to do their own self-breast exams because at the end of the day, we know our bodies best and we're going to be best in terms of observing those changes. So I don't recommend that in place of those formal kind of guidelines like mammograms, ultrasounds, MRIs, et cetera. But I do think that it should be done in addition to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. I was just curious because I always, even when the guideline was changed, I still encouraged my women yeah. to do, and I would say exactly what you said, you know, your body best. If you feel changes, you're going to know before I will. Exactly. So exactly. go ahead and let me know. Okay. Yeah. And we may even notice changes related to our cycle. And so any kind, we should be aware of these kinds of things. So I think that it's definitely an important addition. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So now let's say you're somebody who's listening. They have found out that they have cancer or a loved one has breast cancer. And when a cancer diagnosis comes, it comes with an onslaught of terminology (laughs) and words. We hear, we hear about type and stage and hormone status and HER2. Can you break that down for us? What does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So really breast cancer is this broad kind of diagnosis or condition, but it's really important to understand the details around it when it comes to treatment options, especially, and prognosis. Now, well, when a patient is diagnosed with breast cancer, whether it's for themselves or even a loved one, like you mentioned, it's important to view the pathology report right? And understand the pathology report. And if if guidance is needed in terms of understanding those kinds of words, patient, caregivers, et cetera, definitely need to sit down and talk to the surgical oncologist about that information. But in terms of what we see on there, we'll see things like ductal carcinoma or lobular carcinoma. And so that just tells us the cells in which the cancer has grown from or derived from. And so with a lobular kinds of carcinoma, that comes from the ducts that create the milk and with the ductal carcinoma that comes from the tubes that carry the the milk to the nipple. Now, ductal carcinoma is definitely more commonly diagnosed, but these are the main two types of breast carcinomas that we see. So ductal versus lobular, right? So that's number one. The second thing that we hear a lot is the hormone receptor status. So estrogen receptor positive or negative, progesterone receptor positive and negative, and what does that mean? And so it basically refers to receptors, or you can think of them as proteins that sit on the cancer cell that can be stimulated by estrogen or progesterone. And this information is important to understand because, again, it gives us information about prognosis, and it also gives us guidance about what kind of treatment is going to be most appropriate for the patient. Now, the other kind of receptor that we pay attention to is HER2 nu. Now, when HER2 nu is elevated, that means that the HER2 nu protein, or the HER2 protein, is high in that tumor. And when that HER2 is high, that means that the tumor is dividing more rapidly or growing more rapidly. And fortunately, there are specific medications or treatments, or I should say drugs, that are prescribed for that HER2 nu kind of status and ERPR positive status as well, especially when it comes to hormonal treatment. But that category is very important to understand. Other things that are important to understand on that pathology report is something referred to as KI-67, KI-67. So 
This is a proliferative kind of index. So this gives us some idea of how rapidly the tumor is growing or how rapidly those cells are dividing, right? And so that's going to be important to understand, especially in terms of prognosis, how aggressive do we have to be? Another important point is around grading, tumor grading. So this is something that we see on the pathology report as well. And so grading will give us a clue also of the aggressiveness of the tumor or the aggressiveness of the cancer. So if it's, a, let's say, a grade one, that means it's well differentiated, not as aggressive. If it's a grade three, it's poorly differentiated, more aggressive. So those are kind of the, the main points. There's a little more information in that pathology report, but those are the real main points to understand. Oh, there's actually one more thing that I would add to that, Dr. Carey, and that would be infiltrating or invasive versus DCIS or ductal carcinoma in situ. All right. That's a, an important point that I did not include. So with a ductal carcinoma in situ, that means that the tumor is localized and it has not exited from that duct, which is good. That's early stage disease, curable, 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 right? Now, if it's infiltrating or invasive, that means that the tumor has spread outside of that area, whether it's the duct or the lobule. And so those are really important points to understand. That's really good to know, especially as the ductal carcinoma in situ, or DCIS. I would get a lot of questions, as I'm sure you do too, from women, even on social media, who are like, oh, I've just been told I have DCIS. And I love that you said curable, curable, curable three times because yeah. Yeah. well-defined hasn't broken through. And in fact, I don't know if the, is this still true. Sometimes I have seen some people not consider DCIS true breast cancer, or maybe like a pre-breast cancer. How do you feel about that? Exactly. Yeah. So the ductal carcinoma in situ is considered like a, a pre-cancerous kind of finding, whereas the lobular carcinoma in situ is not considered a, a cancer technically, even though it can be treated with hormonal therapy that you would use for a breast cancer, like tamoxifen, for example. So technically, that's kind of how they are stamped, precancerous and non-cancer for the lobular type. But in terms of my approach, it's pretty much the same in terms of covering those guidelines when it comes to reduction of, of a recurrent disease and you know other things that are important when it comes to breast cancer treatment. And what's triple negative? Triple negative. I'm so glad you asked about that. So triple negative is the most aggressive type of breast cancer. It's a, it's a very aggressive type of breast cancer. And so this basically means that it's estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 new receptor negative. And unfortunately, this breast cancer type is more aggressive. It grows more rapidly and the prognosis is, is much poorer. Now, does that mean that if you have a triple negative diagnosis that you're doomed and you can't do anything? No, it does not mean that. Uh, what it means is that it gives the practitioner information in terms of how to best treat you, right? But in general, when we compare that to a ERPR positive, which has a more optimal kind of or desirable kind of prognosis, there's a difference there. Now, when it comes to the incidence of triple negative breast cancer, that may be maybe about 10 or 15%. The percentage is not very high. It does happen more often in the premenopausal years, more often in African-American women as well. But, you know, the take-home message about that particular diagnosis is that it, it is more aggressive and treatment options are fewer when it comes to the conventional side of treatment. But again, there are a lot of things that we can do to help those patients as well. All right. Well, start, let's talk treatments then. What are some conventional common op treatment options that are out there? Just to give people an idea of the big, the span of it. 
Yeah. So when it comes to conventional care, it depends on the, the staging, right? And so if it's um, early stage kinds of diagnosis, like a DCIS, for example, stage zero, stage one, for example, a patient may be advised to do lumpectomy or a mastectomy, surgical kind of resection. Under other circumstances, or sometimes actually very often in early stage disease, radiation will be advised following that uh, resection of the tumor. So radiation is in the picture as well. Of course, there are chemotherapy drugs that are more specific to breast cancer. There are hormonal treatments that are available for ERPR positive disease. And there are certain drugs that are targeted therapies that are advised for her to new positive disease. So it just kind of depends on, again, going kind of back to that pathology report and just understanding those details. It helps to kind of guide the direction of the treatment regimen. Okay. And then is you having 16, 17 years as an integrative naturopathic oncologist, oncology background, what's your approach? Like what is your typical maybe day or visit when you have a patient who comes to see you with a breast cancer diagnosis? Sure. So there's a lot of information collection, that's for sure. So that initial visit is we spend a lot of time together. I, I ask a lot of questions. Of course, the breast cancer diagnosis is very important. Understanding the receptor status and all those things are going to be important. But then I want to know other things as well, like past medical history, laboratory evaluation, imaging studies, environmental exposures, what kind of foods is the patient eating? How are they sleeping? Stress levels, a basic kind of review of systems. So really just, and then even from a mental emotional kind of aspect, that piece is huge. Stress levels, anxiety, depression, tell me all about that information. So really gathering as much information as I can to get an idea of who this person is and what their background looks like and what kind of things that they're dealing with. And then I look at it as when a patient is receiving conventional medicine, there are gaps. There are gaps. And so I, the way that I view it is the, the approach and the recommendations that I make with a patient kind of fill in those gaps. And so, you know, the, the primary things that I think about are side effect management, of course. A lot of patients, as you can imagine, are fearful of conventional treatment, whether it be hormonal treatment. A lot of women have fear or anxiety around taking a hormonal medication for five and 10 years, understandably. So really focusing on side effect management, whether that be an overt kind of side effect like hot flashes or peripheral neuropathy or increased risk of metabolic changes over time, focusing on those things are going to be very important, cancer inhibiting support, immune support, and then also prevention of recurrence, prevention of recurrence. So really having, getting a solid kind of idea and a thorough kind of analysis of the terrain is going to be an important aspect as well. So just really taking all that information in and making recommendations that fall under nutrition, right? Food is always the foundation. Supplementation, lifestyle management, whether that be sleep hygiene or stress management, or just doing something that's fun, doing things that bring you joy. I mean, that is a prescription in itself. And so in terms of the bigger picture, that's my approach. So let's talk about a few of those. One of the things you said, like long-term metabolic or other laboratory markers, so much of the focus, rightfully so, is right on the cancer itself. But do you evaluate other systems, glucose, insulin, thyroid, et cetera, et cetera? Are you running other lab work or does most of the focus tend to focus just on the breast cancer itself? Yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah, lots of labs. So 
Uh, what typically happens is the patient is having their standard kind of labs done with their medical oncology team, CBC, metabolic panel, tumor marker, whether it's CA15-3 or 2729 or CEA. So that's pretty much covered, right? And that information is basic, is foundational, and it's important and it's helpful. But the other things that I like to look at are inflammatory markers because we know that inflammation drives cancers and so many other chronic kind of conditions. Estrogen is important, yes, but then other hormones are important to evaluate as well. So sugar, insulin, right? And so glucose may be normal, right, at 85 or 90, and that's great, but insulin levels may be higher than desirable. And elevated insulin levels can actually stimulate breast cancer cell growth. So looking at other things, cortisol levels related to stress, looking at certain growth factors that are associated with breast cancer, looking at vitamin D levels, as and you've probably seen this in practice where you may ask, when's the last time you had your D levels checked? I can't remember, two <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Never. <laughs> right. Or that, right. <laughs> Yeah, so looking at all those things. And then, of course, specialty tests come into play, like the Dutch test, right? When we want to look at estrogen kind of metabolism and what that kind of looks like. But there are definitely a lot of evaluative kinds of labs that I use. But the foundation is definitely around kind of the terrain, blood work kind of picture. This is great because if somebody's listening to this themselves and they have a pile of lab work in front of them or they've been sent for lab work, Maybe now they can understand or ask for additional or like, hey, but yeah, I don't see vitamin D in this mix. Yeah, I don't see a fasting insulin in this mix or yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And it might actually help give their team, just as you always say, more information to make decisions and help fill in those gaps. Definitely, definitely. And you know, speaking of vitamin D, conventional providers, from my experience, tend to be more receptive to ordering that versus something like C-reactor protein or insulin-like growth factor one. So something, yeah, adding something like a vitamin D or even a hemoglobin A1C, they may be more receptive to. So each of those markers are very important. Love that. Okay. Well, and going back to estrogen metabolism, estrogen detoxification, obviously a topic and that's passionate of mine, but can you explain, it is breast cancer often, it is estrogen receptor positive, therefore often patients are rightfully upset at their estrogen and their estrogen in their body. So can you explain how estrogen gets broken down, how that maybe can go wrong? And then on top of that, estrogen-like chemicals that may be contributing to the whole picture. Sure, sure. So when it comes to, let's say, measuring estrogen or estradiol levels in the blood, that is different from what I would like to see in terms of how well estrogen is kind of being detoxified, right? And so with something like the Dutch test, I definitely want to see more favorable kind of detoxification of estrogen levels, right? And so the good thing is that there are things that we can put into place, whether it's food or supplementation or lifestyle changes to make those shifts to the more favorable pathways versus the more aggressive pathways that are more kind of carcinogenic. So whether that be adding cruciferous rich vegetables or whether that be adding certain supplements that support kind of that healthy kind of detoxification of estrogen, or perhaps a liver detoxification in between treatment or following chemotherapy is going to be effective and important for not only estrogen kind of detox, but liver detox in general, especially following any kind of chemotherapy regimen. So when it comes to the Dutch, of course, the estrogen piece is going to be very important, but then um, also looking at cortisol kinds of patterns as well, because obviously stress levels increase with the diagnosis and along with treatment. And so looking at those kinds of curves is going to be important as well when it comes to 
prevention of recurrence, overall kind of immune support, blood sugar regulation, insulin level kind of regulation. So yeah, so that's definitely an important piece to evaluate. Okay. All right. I have to ask this just because I get asked it all the time. Is estrogen, estradiol, E2, is it single-handedly the bad person in this whole cancer scenario? You know what? It definitely plays a role, but there are other kinds of uh, pathways that contribute to breast cancer kind of development and progression. So the way that I think about it and sometimes the way that I illustrate it for patients is that if the tumor is in the center, estrogen is just kind of one pathway. But then what about the rest of that circle, the rest of that tumor, those, those other pathways? What do they look like and how do we address those things? So other things, blood sugar regulation, like you said, insulin regulation is definitely going to be important. Stress management, emotional kind of support is going to be important. Things like sleep hygiene and the, the way that kind of regulates hormones is going to be important, whether we're talking about insulin, cortisol, or estrogen. And I don't know if I said inflammation already, but that's definitely going to be important. That is like really the foundation overall. So that's why laboratory and terrain analysis is, is so important because it provides a guide in terms of how to treat or individualize treatment plans, right? And so whenever there's an ER positive kind of breast cancer diagnosis, of course, you're going to be thinking about things that help to reduce kind of exogenous estrogen intake, supporting estrogen kind of metabolism detoxification. So of course you got that category, but then what if you get the last back and suppose there's increased levels of something like I mentioned IGF-1, which we're supposed to have normal levels in our circulation, but when they're elevated, it can actually act as a growth factor, potentially just like insulin, like I mentioned. So definitely want to kind of regulate those things that are abnormal looking at things like kidney function, liver function in the, the metabolic panel, looking at things again like vitamin D. So really taking all these things into account and creating a comprehensive treatment plan that just doesn't impact estrogen kind of pathway, but other kinds of categories as well. Thyroid health is important too, right? So low levels of thyroid or hypothyroidism can certainly increase the risk of breast cancer. So that's something that I measure for most patients as well. But really taking the deeper dive in terms of laboratory analysis is really the key. When we're, I have so many questions. This is so good. Okay. First of all, can you define sleep hygiene? That was the first thing I thought of. What do you mean when you say sleep hygiene for people? So healthy sleeping patterns, meaning sleeping in a dark, quiet room with no electronics, no lights, no lamps, no iPads, no laptops in the bed, no cell phone in the bed cell phone away from your body, turned off or either an airplane mode away from your body, sleeping for at least eight, seven to eight hours every night consistently, going to bed between 10 and 11 p.m. and waking naturally. So really those are kind of the, the key points when it comes to sleep hygiene. And then, then also having a healthy kind of harmonious sleep routine. So for example, don't watch the news before bedtime, right? Because that tends to be very stressful, but read a book that's pleasant or listen to music or talk to a friend or talk to your partner or do something that is pleasant as, as you're going to bed, take a nice bath with Epsom salts. But those are just some kind of general things that fall into that category. The other thing is turning screens off early, right? So take turning the screen off at least 60 minutes before bedtime is a nice thing to do too in terms of regulating melatonin levels. So those are probably the key, the key things. And then with lab work, is there an ideal level of insulin you want people to be under? I know the range. Yeah. I'm assuming you're 
under the range. <laughs> yeah, because the range goes up to like 24 or something. But I like to see patients below five. I like to see definitely not above five. That's kind of my sweet spot. So for every- And a lot of times you will see patients that have a normal fasting glucose, but their insulin might be like 16. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's important to check each of those aspects, fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C and insulin. With well, I was just doing not for cancer purposes, but for what's called cardiometabolic, so heart disease coupled with diabetes risk, so to speak. And I was reading this paper where, yeah, the range, as you said, is it's like two to twenty-four, two to twenty-three, yeah. depending on the lab that you use. And this paper was saying they looked at it was a human study, so they looked at peoples, and if a fasting insulin was above seven. I believe they had three times the risk for cardiometabolic disease. So heart disease risk, wow. diabetes risk, et cetera. And the better group was the group under seven in the five range. They, they had divide, they had cutoffs. And so yeah. I, even just for cardiometabolic, generally you'll hear often you want to be somewhere between two and five. Sure, sure. Because why increase your heart disease risk, diabetes risk, and just as you said, insulin being a growth promoter, mm-hmm. promote cancer growth yep, risk. Exactly. So yeah. this is so good to know. Okay. What about, can you talk a little bit about CRP and the inflammatory marker CRP? Just because I think some, it's not very conventionally run, not often. Yeah. Yeah. People might not know what it is. And then what is your ideal range for CRP? So C-reactive protein, I like to see quantitative C-reactive protein less than one. Now, C-reactive protein is an acute kind of inflammatory reactant. And for me, in terms of how I practice, I like to check that lab marker in patients at least once every four to six weeks, depending on the patient. You know, the, the spaces, it may be quarterly, it may be stretched out a bit, but for the most part, every four to six weeks. Now, CRP is not diagnostic. It is a general marker. So if it is elevated, we can't say, oh, it's elevated for this reason, but it certainly does give us some information that something is happening. And from there, for me, in terms of the patients that I work with, et cetera, it is likely due to cancer, but it's not always because of cancer. Uh, So sometimes we have to take a deeper dive. Now, in terms of how to address CRP, there are lots of natural anti-inflammatories that we can do anywhere from curcumin to ginger to berberine, grapeseed extract. I mean, there's a lot. And of course, lifestyle, even doing something like intermittent fasting overnight for 13 to 16 hours can help to bring down inflammatory levels, but definitely an important marker to follow over time in conjunction with other lab markers. Okay. Speaking of labs, since we're still on this train, genetics. Genetics comes up a lot when it comes to breast cancer. People say, I don't, genetically, I don't have breast cancer in my family, or I have done some sort of genetic test. I, my, I don't have BRCA, but we know the BRCA, BRCA gene is not the be all end all. There are a lot of other genetic SNPs or variants that could play a role. So how do you coach or educate, teach your patients around the topic of genetics when they ask you? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, if a patient presents and they have a strong family history of cancer, I'm always, always referring to a genetic counselor was kind of the the expert around that. When it comes to the actual kind of inherited kind of genes, like the BRCA1, the BRCA2, 
Yeah. So of course, we all know that that's associated with an increased risk of breast cancer and other cancer types. Other genes that have kind of been discovered more recently, like TENS, uh, PALB2, these are other genes that may increase the risk of breast cancer and other cancer types. But there's a lot that we don't know too. Yeah. And so because a patient presents, let's say, with this kind of genetic issue, it's not a It doesn't mean that you're going to be diagnosed with the the cancer type, whether it's a breast cancer or another cancer type. It's just something to pay attention to and, of course, something to take action around in terms of taking a stronger approach to prevention. Now, we were talking about screening guidelines before. So for a patient who has this genetic history, a lot of times they will say, I have three daughters. I want to make sure that they get tested too. So for patients in that or caregivers or loved ones in that category, having screening guidelines early and taking extra precaution is going to be important. Now, there are certain genetic tests that are done for early stage kind of breast cancer, like Oncotype DX. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but... Vaguely. Yeah. So for the Oncotype DX test, it's a genetic test, profiling test, and it's typically used for uh, breast cancer patients who have an ERPR positive or two negative status, early stage disease. And it does give some information in terms of the recurrence and then also how well if chemotherapy should be recommended for this patient. So if that percentage is low, usually chemotherapy is not advised. If it's more elevated, chemotherapy is advised. So that is in place. And then there's mammocyte also, another kind of genetic test that's done to determine if uh, the risk of recurrence is as well. It's not as restrictive as the the Oncotype DX testing just because patients can be ERPR positive or two negative, but it doesn't really matter there. But we do have those things in place now. Wow, what great resources, quite honestly, for a more personalized approach. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And I think that's probably the direction it's headed. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I may have said MAMO site is MAMO print. MAMO print, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, MAMO print. All right. Well, the last question is the big question about chemicals, because this is another common one, right? Estrogen-like chemicals and endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And all your research being in this field for so long, what are your thoughts on the role chemicals play or, or do they? Yeah. So and the environmental piece is huge. That is huge. And so that's actually something that I didn't mention in terms of the different pathways, in terms of how you approach breast cancer treatment and breast cancer prevention. And so we're exposed to toxins day in and day out. Unfortunately, we can't avoid them all, but we can certainly reduce the load. And so one thing that stands out when I think about breast cancer is plastics, exposure to plastics, right? That's huge. And so definitely advising patients against any kind of plastic water bottles as much as possible or any kind of beverages in plastic, any kind of plastic containers, this kind of thing. Also, what I recommend to patients just in terms of general guidelines is to use parchment paper instead of aluminum, aluminum-free deodorant. A great resource is the Environmental Working Group has an app called the Healthy Living app. I always refer patients to that. It's a free app and it's really neat and useful because while you're out and about, all you need to do is scan a particular product, whether it's a household product, a personal care item or food, Mm -hmm. and it'll give it a color-coded score so that you can say, you know what, this is green, I'm going to go with it. This is red, I'm going to choose something else. The other kind of, outside of plastics, the other kind of category I think about is is parabens. Definitely association between parabens and and, and breast cancer kind of risk. And that's going to be in our cosmetic kind of products. We have to be really careful around that. So again, when uh, you look at all of the chemicals 
that may increase the risk of breast cancer and other cancer types. I mean, that list is extensive. You can't carry that list around with you at the grocery store. So having that app is really handy. So whether it's the Healthy Living app or there's another app that I recommend called Think Dirty. So very easy to scan and just get kind of a direct answer and direct guidance in terms of what's going to be cleaner. The other thing that I often advise to patients is clean water, right? Some patients may be doing tap water. Some patients may be doing bottled water day in and day out. They may buy the case at home and just drink out of plastic all day, right? We don't want to do that. And so doing filtered water is definitely going to be ideal. And there are some companies that I recommend for patients to to invest in. And so in general, and of course, organic foods, right? Organic foods, looking at the dirty dozen list, purchasing organic as much as possible. So those are just some general kind of guidelines that definitely help. And liver detox in between treatment as we're able to to clear things out, whether it be from chemotherapy drugs or just kind of general environmental toxins. That's great. That oh, This is such good information. I'm so glad I asked that at the end because I know it's definitely a burning question that a lot of people have just in general around chemicals and health, but definitely chemicals and cancer. So given that this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast and I'm all about practical and tactical, give us like your top one, two or three things you want to leave everybody with. What's your top two or three things you're like, look, when you leave this podcast, I need you to know. Yeah. So, you know, the the main thing that I like to drive home in different interviews that I do in kind of discussions is that we have control. We have control. I think that sometimes we think that we have to go and get a prescription or someone has to tell us what the treatment is and we just go and we receive it and we go home. But there are things that we can do. So simple things like getting sunshine every day, especially during the morning hours for 10 to 15 minutes, really having those self-care kinds of plans in place, that protected time in place is important, or even doing what I refer to as exercise snacks. So during the day, take some, you can um, take a break and do 10 jumping jacks. Exercise is very important. We know exercise is so important for immune support, mental health, cancer prevention. I mean, it's key to so many things. And it doesn't have to be strenuous or hard, but Sometimes I'll do that. I have a trampoline right in my bedroom and in between patients, I'll jump for like five minutes. And later on, I may do 10 squats while I'm brushing my teeth. So getting those kinds of pieces of wellness in is very important and color in our diet, right? And we can't forget spices. So the more color, the better. And so last night, for example, my daughters were in New Jersey with grandparents. Of course, they had all the goodies, the cake, the ice cream, everything you can dream of as a child. So now they're home with me, with us again, right? So now it's like, okay, back to normal. (laughs) Blueberries, we're going to have red peppers. We're going to have a green salad with orange carrots for dinner. I'm so excited about this, right? They're not. But the point is, the more color, the better. And then on your salad or in your smoothie, maybe you'll put an inch of ginger root in there or turmeric root, or maybe you'll put some vanilla extract in your black tea. So just making sure that we're mixing things up as much as possible, getting the probiotic rich foods into our diet like sauerkraut. What I like to do is, again, there's always an opportunity to use food as medicine. So doing something like a tablespoon of sauerkraut twice a day, our GI system is just so grateful for that. And that's not only helpful for GI health, but also for our immune system. So there's my point is that we have control and there's so many simple things that we can do from day to day to help to improve health, improve immune status, cancer fighting effects is certainly in those things. 
cancer prevention is certainly in those things. And there's so much more. I mean, we talked about sleep hygiene. That's another kind of, I was going to say simple, but it's not always so simple because sleep is hard (laughs) for me too. But these are just important things that we can implement on a regular basis for improved wellness. This is fantastic. And like I said, practical and tactical. And I was laughing when you said exercise snacks and your trampoline, because my trampoline is literally oh wow right there. It's eight feet from me. I mini trampoline a lot. It's my husband used to make fun of me, but now he he's like, you're one of the only person people in the whole world who I would know would would buy a mini trampoline and actually use it. And I'm gonna say, well actually Dr. Amina does too. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It is so fun. Like I'll listen to a pot in fact, I listened to a podcast that you did with uh, Dr. Wong oh. a couple of weeks back Yeah, on my trampoline. Yes. So <laughs> I'm learning and I'm exercising, multitasking. And it is fun. Many trampolines yeah. are fun. I love yeah. it. Oh, yeah. well, this is fantastic. Tell everyone where they can find you. Sure. So uh, in terms of social media, Facebook and Instagram, Dr. Amina Keats, D-R-A-M-I-N-A-H-K-E-A-T-S. And my website is drkeats, D-R-K-E-A-T-S dot com. Amazing. You are seeing patients, correct? I am. I am seeing patients. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Yes. And I also offer free 15-minute phone consultations. So for folks who have just kind of general questions about how does naturopathic medicine fit into cancer care, happy to schedule those things as well. Oh, you're such a resource. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I so appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. It's been great. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.